Welcome to Listen Up, a Marine Log podcast. This is John Snyder, publisher and editor of Marine Log. If you talk to ship operators, one of their chief concerns is the impending IMO 0.5% global sulfur cap due to take effect on January 1st, 2020. Will there be enough low sulfur fuel available for operators to comply? What's the best strategy for compliance? Using scrubbers? Burning LNG or methanol as a marine fuel? Transitioning from fuel oil to marine gas oil? There's certainly a lot of confusion in the marketplace. To get some answers, we spoke with Nick Brown, Director of Marine and Offshore at Lloyd's Register, one of the world's largest and most respected class societies. Nick, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. When did you join Lloyd's Register? So I joined Lloyd's Register 22 years ago. I don't know where the time has gone. And um, spent the first 10 years of my career working as a surveyor across a range of activities. But six of those 10 years uh, working as an existing ship surveyor in the Middle East. Uh, And I then had the opportunity to uh, work in Asia, leading our business in China uh, for seven years. And more recently, uh, over the last four years in our global technology, Center here in Southampton. Now, certainly, one of the issues for ship operators these days is the IMO 0.5% global sulfur cap, uh, which takes effect January 1st, 2020. What does that cap mean for ship operators? Well, I, I can uh, confirm, John, over the conversations I've had with our clients from Vancouver, Houston to uh, Beijing and Singapore over the last four weeks, that it is by far the hottest topic of debate. I think most of the industry has been taking a fairly cautious approach and have not been rushing to a decision. But I think over the last number of weeks and months, we've seen quite a large number of companies now elevate this to board level because it's clear to them that getting this preparation correct and uh, ensuring that all of the options available for compliance from you know, not just a, a, a technical perspective but also a safety, commercial and market perspective is, is very much a, a key topic for our, our clients' boards to consider. And of course there's not one answer that is suitable for the whole industry. And uh, what I would say is we are seeing multiple approaches and, and multiple different strategies being uh, adopted. Now you mentioned you know multiple strategies, uh, multiple approaches. How is Lloyd's Register supporting its clients with uh, compliance? Well I think first, first and foremost we've been making sure that all of our customers understand the options, options available to them. Uh, each of those options comes with different investment plans, whether it be investment in abatement technology and scrubbers in order to continue to burn uh, 3.5% sulfur fuel uh, after 2020, or uh, buying what is likely to be significantly more expensive uh, 0.5 or um, distillate fuel uh, post-2020. But of course it comes also with some significant operational issues that are customers need to ensure. So where are their ships trading? 
what types of fuel will be available uh, in the ports that they're calling, and how variable is their, is their trading uh, portfolio. I, obviously, I would say it's a much easier challenge to address if our ship owners know that their vessel is going to be operating on a liner route and they're going to be operating around a fixed number of ports and then it's relatively easy to negotiate with the bunker suppliers the availability of uh, the fuels that fit their strategy. But for those operating on a sort of tramp trade in more, let's say, remote parts of, um, of the world, it, it becomes a much more complex uh, fuel supply uh, challenge. Now, I just saw that uh, Lloyd's Register came out with something called the Sulfur 2020 Options Evaluator. What, what's that all about? So it's, it's, it's in recognition that quite a number of uh, our, our smaller customers will not necessarily have the in-house capacity to develop a high-level indication of the economic implications of their various uh, compliance options. So, uh, I think it is something that um, is, is able to then give uh, the executives within those companies, let's say, a range of possibilities. Obviously, you know, this takes in key parameters such as what's the daily fuel oil consumption of the vessel, how many days at sea is the vessel expected to be sailing versus days in port, what are the uh, implications around uh, uh, extra maintenance, for example, of uh, abatement technology, etc., such that they can then consider all the um, variabilities around the fuel spread because what is uh, quite clear is that if if the vessel is a very large vessel burning perhaps more than 50 tons per day and sailing uh, at sea more than 200 days a year then the payback period on a scrubber installation or retrofit uh, whether that's on a, a new building or an existing vessel is likely to be uh, very short uh, certainly many people forecasting that payback period could be less than a year. Uh, obviously all of that depends on the fuel spread which no one really knows today but I am uh, certain that there will be a significant amount of volatility uh, as the uh, supply of fuel and demand for fuel approaches 2020. Some ship owners are looking at LNG, liquefied natural gas, as a marine fuel uh, to comply with the 2020 uh, regs. Lloyd's Register has done quite a bit of work in, in alternative fuels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's a growing trend, uh, John. Obviously, we've seen now LNG-fueled uh, vessels, which are not carrying LNG as a cargo, are in operation since 2013 when the Viking Grace was delivered, and she's been operating uh, very successfully over the last five-year period. Uh, that's then spread into uh, other sectors. Initially, as you might imagine, 
fairly niche sectors with vessels operating primarily within uh, the European ECA with uh, small cement carriers, uh, then spreading into um, ferries operating in, in Canada. Um, we've had pure car and truck carriers delivered from Chinese yards in the last uh, few years with LNG as a fuel. And now more recently this year, uh, more standard, let's say deep sea workhorses such as Supermax full carriers delivered from Korea to use LNG as a fuel. So it's very much becoming something that where the uh, supply of the fuel and the operational profile of the vessel suit uh, LNG, something that more and more operators are considering. And I'm sure that that will be a trend that will only be accelerated by the 2020 um, regs. We've also, however, seen an increase also in other fuels other than LNG or other alternative fuels, whether that be ethanol, and we've uh, done quite a lot of work with Stena on the uh, Germanica ferry, converting the existing engines to run on methanol, and uh, indeed hydrogen, although on a much smaller scale working with clients in, in Europe uh, on, a, on a very small vessel, the Hydroville, which is uh, a proof of concept, if you like, of, of using hydrogen as, a, as an alternative fuel. Certainly, as you pointed out earlier, uh, Nick, one size does not fit all uh, operations. One of the things on the uptake is a hybrid electric and all electric propulsion. Uh, what, what's driving that trend? I think it's a recognition that as, as we see with other industries, if you take, for example, the uh, automotive industry, the, you know, the Paris Agreement is accelerating the adoption of lower carbon, uh, more reliable and sustainable uh, powering sources. And hy hybrid solutions, if you like, or large uh, battery installations to be able to manage peaks and troughs of, of power demand on any kind of asset, whether that be a Toyota Prius or it be a, uh, a larger fuel consumer such as a, uh, a, a commercial ocean-going vessel, offer some real advantages in managing those power uh, peaks and troughs. And uh, I liken it to, to the fact when I'm talking to our clients around the world, if you consider how many diesel generators are running on board that, uh, a typical deep sea vessel, generally they would have three. And I would suggest uh, far too often we have two diesel generators running which are not running on a peak load. And if uh, we were able to more widely adopt uh, a, a power management system which, with a large battery pack associated with that power management system, I could foresee a future where almost every vessel then would only be running on one diesel generator set uh, almost all of the time and uh, that generator set um, ensuring that the charge to a battery pack is maintained when, it's, uh, when the ship is consuming lower power levels and then when higher power levels are required the battery then supplementing the uh, diesel generator set and that of course it's not new technology is proven technology in many industries and it is something that we are um, welcoming the greater adoption within the uh, marine industry and uh, a number of ferries that Lloyd Riddick has been involved with in Europe are now putting that into practice. 
Nick, if you could give us a peek into the future, what, what technologies do you think will have the biggest impact on the maritime industry over the next five years? We've, we've spent, as you may know, uh, John, quite a lot of effort into our thought leadership in this area with our Global Marine Trends 2030 reports and the most recent edition, two editions of that series have been our Global Marine Technology Trends 2030, which pointed to the adoption of uh, eight key technologies, um, but by far, if you like, the, the biggest was the move towards greater levels of autonomy within operations, uh, uh, data collection, and of course that relying on improved communications between ship, shore, fleet, and the, the whole supply chain of the industry. And I think if we if we consider also uh, the decision at IMO on the 2050 CO2 emission target, then I think a lot of the uh, environmental pressure that will come with the um, you know the adoption of new fuels, the adoption of new fuel consumers, the adoption of potential new uh, fuel management systems will be very much supported by also the adoption of new control systems and integration systems. So we don't see there being any single individual technology that will, if you like, transform the industry. In fact, what we, what we expect is that the ability to integrate technologies, integrate new fuels, integrate fuel management systems, integrate the way in which assets are operated and integrate the assets with the supply chain, i.e. the port, integrate the technology with the people that are operating it and integrate the technology with uh, maintenance regimes will probably be the biggest trend, I would say, uh, between now and 2030. And um, I think a key question for the industry to ask is the role of people on board ships in the future. I think today we generally expect those people on board uh, ships today to carry out two main roles. Uh, that's the role of maintenance and the role of operation. But as we've seen with other industries, I think uh, as more uh, sophisticated equipment becomes uh, designed into future vessels and the ability to track the performance of that equipment uh, more remotely evolves at, at a significant pace, I can foresee that the role of people on board will shift away from maintenance and more towards pure operation of ships and then the maintenance be carried out at uh, very much a sort of planned and strategic shutdown period as it is indeed in, in many, many other capital intensive industries, whether we talk about the petrochemical industry or we talk about uh, aviation industry. Nick, thanks for stopping and uh, chatting with us today. My pleasure.